Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. The first Sunday of the month, the elders are working through 1 Timothy, and uh, we uh, share in the responsibility of, of teaching in this church, and uh, the first Sunday of the month is designated for us to uh, uh, share and, and, and work, th- and this time we're working through 1 Timothy. So if you can grab your Bibles and start opening to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll, I'll give you a chance to get there because I've got mine marked. Um, today we are looking at the purpose and the foundation of this book, this first letter of Timothy. And I would like you to take away from this that as members of God's household, we must display the truth of the gospel. Again, as members of this household, we must display the truth of the gospel. So let us look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to go through 14 through the end of the chapter. It says here, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know that how one ought to conduct oneself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. So before digging into this passage, let's take a step back and just look at the characters and the locations involved here. Some of the background and setting. So Timothy was the primary recipient of this letter and was and this letter was expected to be read to the churches throughout Ephesus and in the surrounding area. So when we started our study in 1 Timothy, we learned that Timothy may have confessed Christ as a Savior on Paul's first missionary trip. His mother and grandmother were very much involved in discipling him and helping him grow spiritually as a boy. And then Paul probably invited Timothy to join him on his second missionary trip as uh, Paul passed through Um, Paul's town, or Timothy's town. And then Timothy was probably only in his late teens when he started his uh, travels with um, Paul, maybe his his early 20s. So Paul lived life with Timothy and invested in his growth spiritually. So earlier in the book, Paul calls Timothy his true child in the faith. By writing this letter, Timothy was, by by the time of this writing of this letter, Timothy was probably in his mid-30s. And since Paul could could not go to Ephesus, he sent Timothy to deal with some of the issues that were happening in that church. And in the opening of this passage, in verse 14 here, we see that Paul may have, have concern for Timothy and for the churches, 
Ephesus was a very large city. In fact, it was probably the fourth largest city in the known world at the time. And so there were many church communities that were in Ephesus. So Paul is using his authority to write instructions to the churches. Paul is an apostle. He had a miraculous encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, even seeing Christ himself. And this is all detailed in Acts chapter 9. Not only that, Paul was commissioned by Christ. And Ananias was sent to Paul with this commandment. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So Paul had authority to write this message. In verse 14, we see that Paul is desiring to see Timothy. And he wants it to be soon. We see that Paul cares for Timothy. He wants to go and encourage Timothy. In chapter 1, verse 3 of 1 Timothy, there's an indication that Timothy may be struggling with the tasks of dealing with these churches. But on top of that, Paul is concerned for the church. Even though he plans to come soon, the purpose of this letter that we see in verse 15 is so important that any delay in sharing the contents of this letter would be, could be detrimental to the church. And so he must write these instructions down and send them. So why did Paul write this urgent letter? We see it here. So that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. In chapter 1, Paul pointed out some of the issues that were happening within the church in Ephesus. So, in the subsequent chapters, he's instructing, instructing Timothy how the church should be led, and then how the Ephesians should be acting when they gather together and when they are in community. He presents this purpose immediately after instructing Timothy on the two offices in the church. Notice that both of the roles of the elders and the deacons have a list of qualifications, most of which are expectations for all of those who claim Christ as their Savior. Paul was setting up the leadership to be an example of how one should conduct himself, and ultimately they are to be like Christ. 1 John 2, 5 and 6 tells us, by this we know that we are in Christ. The one who says he abides in Christ ought himself to walk in the same manner as Christ walks. These qualifications are applied attributes that Christ displayed for us as he walked blameless and above reproach. Though Paul is writing to Timothy in all the churches in Ephesus and the surrounding all the churches in Ephesus and the surrounding area would hear about this letter and hear this letter. Even today, we are hearing this letter. So the behavior is expected throughout the church. And here it says, the household of God. This is not just referring to a house, as some translators have translated this word, but it encompasses the idea that it is not only a dwelling place, but a family. What is the household of God? I don't think it's what we normally and have traditionally considered it. 
It is family. Many passages talk about us being children of God and being adopted. Some of these being Romans 9, 8, 1 John 3, 1 and 2, Romans 8, 14 through 17, Galatians 4, 7, 4 through 7, Ephesians 1, 5, and many others. In fact, Christ himself gives us an example of this, that this family is more family than biological family. In Matthew 12, Jesus was busy teaching, and his biological mother and half-brothers were looking for him. Maybe they were coming to call him for dinner or something, or maybe they needed help at the house. Or um, At this time, I don't think the family really believed what Christ was talking about. And so maybe they were just ch checking on him to see what crazy things he was saying. But starting in verse 46 of Matthew 12, he said, it says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? Who is my brother? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. The family bond to his disciples was greater than the biological bond to Mary and his brothers Joseph, James, Jude, and Simon. This is the household that Paul is talking about and whose is it? It is God's household. A pastor's, not a pastor's church or a denomination's church. It belongs to God. It is God's family, his house. He built it. He led it. And he adopted us into it. Paul then adds a bit more to describing this household. It is a church of the living God. God is not dead or inactive. So I've got a question. If you remember from, I think it was February, the first Sunday of February, what was one of the biggest attractions in Ephesus? Temple. What temple? Artemis' temple. Or the temple of Diana. So Artemis was the Greek god. Uh, Diana was the uh, Roman god. Equivalent. So Paul was showing the Ephesian church that God was different than the Greek or Roman gods. He is living and active, working in the world and changing lives. So the Roman gods, they were just gods. You know, you did your worship or whatever to, for them, and maybe they would be doing something. But God was alive. He's working in the world and changing lives. Colossians 1.17 says that he is actively holding everything together. And Philippians 2.13 says that God is working in us for his good pleasure. And again, the church here is not a building. Unfortunately, it is often translated or referred to as an assembly or congregation. But it is the word here, the Greek word used here is ekklesia, which is derived from two words, which is called out, which, which basically means out of and a call. So it's a called out. This is a household of the called out ones of God. 
We are called out of this world and brought together in his household for his glory. But then Paul further defines this household or group of called out ones. They are a pillar and a support of truth. Paul is again using the setting of Ephesus and particularly the temple to convey his thought, thoughts. So this great, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world temple of Artemis was huge. It had 127 pillars holding the roof up. Obviously, the support for these pillars was incredible. So the Ephesians understood what Paul was getting at here. The church was to be a demonstration of truth. As 127 pillars of the temple were seen from all over, so too the church is to be displaying the truth to the world. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The words used here for support or buttress basically means ground or support, something very firm to build on. Figuratively, it could mean the basis of. Here it says the church is the pillar and support of the truth. But who is the church built on? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 15, that Christ is ultimately the foundation. And Ephesians 2.20 says that he is the cornerstone. Last week, Mike did a great job making clear where truth came from. Christ is the basis of truth, John 14.6. And he is the foundation of the church. The church is the truth that the world sees. We need to be sharing truth and being truth to the world that does not have a foundation to stand on. John Calvin says of this, the church maintains the truth because by preaching the church proclaims it, because she keeps it pure and entire, because she transmits it to posterity. In the church context, our faith is built by hearing, hearing the truth that comes by preaching. That is why it is so important for elders and deacons to be above reproach, blameless, and holding to the mystery of faith, as we saw earlier in this chapter. And then I believe that the core of this truth is expressed in the next verse. Verse 16 says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Some say that this may have been part of a hymn that the early church sang. It, was also, it is also one of three poems that are found in 1 Timothy. There's one in chapter 1, verse 17, and a similar one in chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. A few commentaries pointed out an interesting feature of the six lines in this poem, or hymn fragment. 
There looks like there's three sets of pairs. Notice the last word in each line. One refers to supernatural or spiritual things, and the other refers to natural or mortal things. I'm not sure if this has any real significance, except for maybe for the poetry. But the lines themselves are packed with significance. Let us take a look at those. The phrase, by common confession, or great indeed we confess, that we see in newer translations, shows that the next line that the next few lines are what is common to the belief of the true follower of Christ. Or, as Paul is hinting, as at, at the, that those that are part of the household of God. The King James uses a different, slightly different trans expression or translation of the word that's used here, which is very valid for the meaning of the word. It is without controversy. There are no argument and no dispute over what, over the truth that Paul is sharing here. So it is a common confession. Everybody needs to believe it, and there is no controversy over it. I think that Paul is also clearly differentiating between the false teachings that we saw earlier in, the, in this uh, book and the different doctrines that those guys were teaching and, and uh, differentiating it with the believers that are true believers in the household of God. And these next few lines are probably specific issues that were being dealt with in the, in the church and that these false teachers were causing controversy over. Paul says, there is no argument. So what is this mystery of godliness? This mystery is not something that is hidden from believers. We have seen this before in Colossians 1, 26 and 27. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In Ephesians 3, this mystery is the gospel that is making the Gentiles fellow heirs and members of the body. The mystery is what is making people part of the household of God. From our study of Colossians 2.2, we saw that the mystery is Christ and that Christ is the only way to godliness. Thus, understanding of the mystery of godliness is rooted in the knowledge of Christ. But why is it referred to as a mystery? Because those that are not part of the church or not part of the household of God do not understand or not have or have not experienced its meaning. They do not know Christ. So, for example, have you ever had a friend who's had an experience of some sort? Maybe they rode on the newest, coolest roller coaster, or they went fishing and caught a big tuna, or something like that. I mean, I've, those are some experiences I've had. Or gone bowling, gone to the bowling, uh, national bowling competition in Las Vegas. I spent a day listening to that. Um, and, uh, you know, they've had these experiences, and they tell you about it. But until you've actually experienced it yourself, the reality of that experience is still a mystery. 
We as Christians are able to experience the reality of the gospel because we know Christ. God then moved on to, or Paul then moved on to explain the mystery of godliness, the mystery of Christ. As mentioned earlier, Paul is probably directing these next lines to specific disputes in the Ephesian church. And remember, there is no room for controversy or argument surrounding these truths. First, he was revealed or manifest in the flesh. We need to establish who the subject is here. This is Christ. Only one person has fulfilled all the truths listed. And we have just seen that the subject of the mystery is Christ. As he was revealed in flesh, manifested or revealed implies that he existed before he became human. John 1, 1 and 2 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He became human. In the same chapter of John, in verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ is 100% man and 100% God. He did not change from God to man. He did not leave his deity in heaven and then take it back up when he returned, leaving his human body on earth. But we will talk a little bit more about that shortly. He did not do that. He was 100% man and 100% God. Next, we have vindicated in spirit. Vindicated or justified here means that Christ was shown to be innocent or righteous. Hebrews 7.26 says that he was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. The word here translated spirit with a capital S is the same word used for little s spirit. So it does not specifically refer to the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit of Christ, which could be referring to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to stop there so that we don't get any more confused, but it may be an interesting discussion for some time. So you may have a footnote that says that, says that the phrase by the Spirit could be translated in the little s spirit. But any way we look at the Spirit within Christ, this demonstrated that Christ was righteous. So this spirit that was in Christ made him righteous. Interestingly, or I shouldn't say made him righteous, it demonstrated that he was righteous because he was righteous. Interestingly, it's not an outward force that made Christ righteous. We as Christians are righteous because of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But he, Christ, is righteous from within. This clearly shows Christ's deity. For only God could be righteous in and of himself. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2.22 John Calvin says of this vindication by the Spirit, he says, He who appeared clothed with human flesh was at the same time declared to be the Son of God, so that the weakness of the flesh made no decrease of his glory. 
You can see that one of the pair, see one of the pairs at work here that I mentioned earlier. Paul shows that Christ became flesh. He became human. But he immediately turns around and says that, and declares that Christ is divine, the Son of God. Now to the third line. Seen by angels. So the Greek word here, translated as angels, means messenger. And often implies a messenger sent by God. If we consider this as angelic beings, we know that the angels saw Christ in many situations. Before being revealed in flesh, the angels were with with him in heaven. He ruled over the angels. He was their king. Um, They were around him when he became a baby. In Mark 1.13, they ministered to him after his temptation in the wilderness. They were in his tomb. I mean, they... And then at his ascension, there were some angels. The angels were there as well. So the angels have special interest in knowing what is happening. But the interesting thing is, this gospel, the reason that Christ came, and all the events surrounding Christ is a mystery to them, since they cannot experience redemption that comes through Christ. This is their creator. This is their ruler. The creator of all things, becoming human. Psalms 8, 5 prophesies in Hebrews 2, 6 through 8 confirms that Christ was made for a little while lower than the angels. Paul again may have been showing Christ's divinity and his importance to the angels along with the fact that Christ was submitting to be a human. However, if the word angel is translated as messenger, this breaks the idea of the three pairs that I mentioned earlier, but that's okay. If we consider this as human messengers, Paul is saying there are witnesses to Christ. He was seen by these messengers. The Ephesians had grown up with the Greek and Roman gods. No one had seen them, yet they still worshipped them and considered them important anyway. However, Christ had been seen Even Paul himself was witness to that. The apostles saw him. These were chosen messengers sent by God, and they had been there with Christ. They even saw him die. They even saw him risen again. In flesh, fully human, fully God. If this is referring to human messengers, I suspect that people were infiltrating the church, saying that Christ is just another Greek myth. Paul says, no, he was seen by his messengers. He is real. And we get to line number four here. Proclaimed among the nations. Paul is stating that the message of the gospel has been and is being proclaimed among the nations. Christ himself sent the disciples out to make disciples in Matthew chapter 28. And the fifth line here, is related to the fourth, believed in on, believed on in the world. Not only was the gospel being preached, but people were believing. And they still are believing. This was not just for the Jews, but God provided a way for the world to believe and become part of the household of God. Romans 10, 9 and 10 
says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. This was a fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. That through him all the world will be blessed. But Paul finally ends with this ends this poem with taken up into glory. Christ in his glorified body, still human and still God, was taken up into heaven. Christ had died and he rose again. He did not leave his body in the grave, but that body became alive again. Then after many had seen him, he was taken up into glory. This should be a great encouragement to us in that we will see him again. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, it tells us that Christ will return. Those that have died will rise again first, and then those that are alive will be next, and we will be with the Lord. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. I am excited for that day. But we as leadership and as a house of God have, a lot, have some work to do. As we close, I have three questions here for us to think about and act upon. As children of God, are we living and displaying the truth of the gospel? As a household of God, are we showing the world the truth by being that pillar and foundation? And then for application, what can we do this week to display the truth to those around us? Now this is for those of us that are part of the household of God. What can we do? What should we be doing? But some of us, some here, may still think that this is all a mystery. And I just want to invite you, if, if you don't understand the gospel, don't understand what Christ has done, please talk to one of the elders or the person next to you in the pew. Um, we would really like to share with you what God, God has done for you and for us. So, as we close, just a reminder, what can we do this week to be a light, to display the truth to those around us? Let's pray. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.